With the seasons changing and some fun getaways on my calendar, I want to spruce up my warm weather wardrobe. That's why I'm happy I found Quince. Quince offers clothing and accessories for women and also men, even kids and babies. Plus, Quince has housewares like organic duvet covers and shams and so much more. Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. That's because Quince partners directly with top factories. They cut out the middleman and pass the savings on to customers like me and you. Quince works only with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing processes, along with premium fabrics and finishes. What's not to love about that? So get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash gray for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash gray to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash dating while gray. For me, getting back out there means sprucing up my date night wardrobe, but I don't necessarily want to have a lot of extra stuff to hang on to. That's why I was happy to find out about Armoire. It's a clothing rental service, and it really takes away the stress about what to wear. For a monthly fee, members get access to high-quality designer clothing for any occasion. Just take a five-minute style quiz to get suggestions and then pick what you want. The clothes arrive in as little as two days. One of the items I chose is a green v-neck wrap dress that works for both business and pleasure. And here's one thing I really love. Armoire is women-founded and women-led. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash gray. That is armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash dating while gray to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. This is Dating While Gray, the grown-up's guide to love, sex, and relationships. I'm Laura Stasi. Remember that PSA that aired on TV for years with the egg and the frying pan? This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Yeah, I think love is a lot like that too. This episode, The Older Brain on Love. I met a woman, let's call her Mia who was willing to talk about her relationship with a man we'll call Ben. But not only did Mia not want to use her real name, she didn't want her voice to be heard. So we're using a voice actor to help share her story. Mia didn't want anyone to know who she is because she's really embarrassed about her behavior. She tells me she's normally very rational, emotionally strong. I don't let feelings get the best of me. But when it comes to Ben... I don't know. I just lose my mind. It's like kryptonite to Superman. Those are Mia's words, not mine. Mia thought Ben was the one from the very first moment I saw him in college. Nothing happened back then, but she'd fantasize about him over the years, wonder where he was and what he was doing. And about 30 years later, after they'd both been married and divorced, she finally found him on social media and reached out. So he remembered her. Remembered me. And then we started seeing each other. 
But that's when I found out the real Ben wasn't anything like the fantasy. Ben had a hair-trigger temper. He'd get so mad so easily. He'd pout or yell when he didn't get his way. And little things just set him off. And sometimes he'd just behave like a toddler. He told lies. He'd flirt with younger women right in front of her. He talked about moving in together and then getting married, but refused to compromise about kids and schedules. When Mia tried to talk to Ben about any of this, he'd break up with her. And then he'd ignore her until he was ready to get back together. He was in control the entire time. And when he reached out, Mia would always respond. I'd tell myself, no, not this time. Don't answer. But... She hates that she did this. And she hates that when they were apart, she'd look for ways to stay viscerally connected. Like she'd scour social media for clues about about what he was doing. doing. And visit bars and restaurants that he'd been to. Mia also looked at social media to figure out who Ben was dating. Sometimes she'd think, That one doesn't look like his type at all. I'd even contacted one woman and drove more than 100 miles to meet and talk about Ben. And when Ben moved out of state, this other woman and I put our heads together to figure out where he was living. I even made plans to go visit him, figuring figuring he'd he'd reach back out sooner or later. Mia finally found the strength to block Ben. Phone calls, text, emails, and social media. She doesn't want to be tempted to see what he's doing, and she doesn't want him to be able to reach out to her. But even though Mia is now in a great relationship... She says she doesn't think she'll ever be completely over Ben. I think a lot of us have behaved in ways that now make us cringe, all in the name of love. And while we might expect this when we're younger, what about when we're older? We know how aging affects our bodies, but when it comes to love, does aging affect our brains too? For answers, I've turned to Helen Fisher. She's a biological anthropologist, and she's considered the premier expert on the biology of love and attraction. She studies the brain on love. And we've done a lot of studies, but the three major ones is we put uh, 17 people who had just fallen happily in love into the brain scanner, and then we put um, uh, 15 people who had just been rejected in love into the scanner, and then we put um, 17 men and women uh, who were in their 50s and 60s, and they were all in a long-term happy marriage into the scanner. And in fact, they would come into the lab and say, well, Helen, you know, I'm still in love with him, or I'm in love with her. Just not loving, but in love. And Americans don't think that you can remain in love with somebody long term. But we were able to prove that, sure, the basic brain regions that became active among the young who were very happily in love became active in long term happy partnerships. Okay. How about people who uh, find love at an older age? Would their brains tend to act the same way? Or is it something, these connections or hormones, something that we have to generate when we're younger? No, this is a brain system like the fear system or the anger system or the the surprise system. I mean, this is a brain system. The youngest person that uh, I ever met who was um, madly in love was age actually two and a half. I mean, we're not studying the sex system. We're studying the, the system for romantic love. And the oldest person that I know today who's madly in love is 87 years old. So it's a basic brain system that can become active at any time in your life. It's like a sleeping cat. It can be awakened at any time. 
It's very reassuring what you're saying because, you know, we know that estrogen declines as we age and testosterone can have peaks and valleys as we age. So I think a lot of people mix those up with the, the I guess, love hormones. Is that what you would call them? They're actually not hormones. The hormones are estrogen and testosterone. The neurotransmitters are serotonin and dopamine. And what we've found in all of the people who were happily in love, people who were in their early 20s and people who were in their early 60s, they all showed the same activity in the basically same brain region. It's a tiny little factory near the base of the brain called the ventral tegmental area, or the VTA. Uh, When you look at a photograph of a sweetheart, Um, while you're lying in the machine, activity begins to happen in that uh, VTA, and it begins to make dopamine a natural stimulant Ah. that gives you the focus and the motivation and the energy and the optimism of romantic love. And what's so interesting about the VTA and this dopamine response is that that factory lies right next to the factory that orchestrates thirst and hunger, Thirst and hunger keep you alive today. Romantic love um, drives you to uh, focus your mating energy on a particular individual and send your DNA into tomorrow. So uh, romantic love is not an emotion. It's a drive. It's a basic mating drive that evolved millions of years ago to start the mating process. And so even though you're describing it as a mating process, of course, once we're over 50, we're not looking to procreate. But you're saying it's a drive to have a partner? Yeah. You know, that's a wonderful question because, you know, I've written a lot of books on this and one of the books was called Why We Love. And I had to sit at my desk and wonder why. Why is it that this basic uh, brain system doesn't sort of atrophy after your reproductive years are over? But then I began to think, well, you know, I mean, I'm an anthropologist and for millions of years we lived in these little hunting and gathering societies. And What romantic love does is it drives up the dopamine system and gives you energy and focus and motivation and positive feelings. And it would be very adaptive a million years ago for a man and woman to fall in love at age 50 or 60 or 70 um, because they would be a better group member. I mean, they would have somebody to care for them, somebody that they could care for. When you snuggle with somebody, you're driving up oxytocin. That's very healthy. Um, You know, when you laugh with somebody, that drives up dopamine and gives you energy, uh, boosts the immune system, um, boosts the endorphins for to reduce pain. Uh, When you play with somebody, it it contributes to brain growth. So at any time in life, all of these brain systems become more activated, more energized if you're madly in love with somebody. And so, by the way, um, I I read an article only that um, basically showed that if you're in a good relationship with somebody, it actually slows the aging process. So romantic love uh, is a basic brain system that obviously had multiple purposes. When you're young, to find a partner to reproduce and send your DNA on to tomorrow. And when you're older, to find a partner for your health and for the health of your community. Oh, that's such a hopeful thought. I love that. (laughs) Well, I think it's accurate as well as hopeful, frankly. (laughs) Does your brain respond differently to love, depending on whether you're a man or a woman? Helen weighs in on that after the break.
Hi, I'm Phil Donahue. And I'm Marlo Thomas. We fell in love on live television and got married over 40 years ago. Now on our new podcast, we visit the homes of our favorite long-married celebrity couples. To talk about enduring love and all its challenges. Family, career conflict, addiction, illness, jealousy. Everything a couple can face. It's Double Date. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. From Pushkin Industries. Yeah. And does the male brain act the same as the female brain? Yes. Uh, we've, we put just as many men into our brain scanner as women, and we found exactly the same um, activity in the male brain. Bottom line is men uh, fall in love faster than women. They fall in love more often than women. They, um, when they meet a woman that they like, uh, men want to introduce uh, the woman to friends and family sooner. Um, uh, men want to move in sooner. Men have more intimate conversations with their partner than women do with their partner because women have their intimate conversations with their girlfriends. Uh, Both sexes are romantic, but men are a little bit more fragile. I've been trying to tell that to the women's magazines for 40 years. they dedicated to thinking that women are more romantic. They're both romantic, but it happens to men sooner. I have heard, and again, I don't know if this is just if this is based in fact, but that men tend to be very visual. And so, you know, they need to feel a visual connection or, you know, physical interest before they can fall in love. Whereas women, physically, it might not be their ideal, but they can learn basically to fall in love. Is there any scientific evidence to support that? Well, men are more visual. There's no question about that. Uh, and it comes from millions of years of having to hit that buffalo in the head with a rock. You really had to to be visual. And by the way, um, that visual sense of men plays a very important role in reproduction. Um, uh, uh, There's something called the hip-to-waist ratio. In other words, women of a certain size and shape get pregnant much more easily, carry the baby more easily, uh, have parturition more easily, and have fewer uh, diseases like uh, diabetes or certain cancers that would make them less likely to be a good reproductive partner. Um, And so it's adaptive for men to be able to take a look at women because he's not thinking of it uh, when he says, oh, she's cute or oh, she's not or whatever. But from a Darwinian evolutionary perspective, it was adaptive for men to look for signals of health and uh, fertility in women, because it's the women who are going to send their seed into tomorrow. So the bottom line is it's adaptive for, for men to um, uh, be quite visual and to have a very visual response to women. This is one of the reasons they fall in love faster, because they are so visual. It's also very adaptive for women to want to know whether the man has got any money and has got a good job, because she's going to bear that baby, but he has to help her raise it. Is physical attraction, being physically attracted to someone, is the same brain function in play as falling in love with someone? Yeah, wonderful question. No, um, we've evolved, and I write a lot about this, we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems from mating and reproduction. One is the sex drive that is really orchestrated largely by the testosterone system in both men and women. 
The second is the feeling of intense romantic love, uh, orchestrated largely by the dopamine system in both men and women. And the third is feelings of deep attachment, that sense of calm and security you can feel with a long-term partner, orchestrated by, by different neurochemicals, oxytocin and vasopressin. So I think the sex drive evolved to get you out there looking for a whole range of partners. You know, you can have sex with somebody you're not in love with. Right. Uh, romantic love evolved to enable you to focus your mating energy on just one person at a time. And feelings of deep attachment evolved uh, to enable you to stick with this person uh, at least long enough to raise a single child through infancy. So they're the different brain systems, mm-hmm. and they evolve for different reasons. What's interesting is the press always seems to get this wrong. They assume, oh, well, yeah, we start with sex, that goes to romantic love, and then it goes to deep attachment. It's not true. These aren't phases. They're brain systems. So you can have a long, particularly among older people, uh, you can have a long um, attachment to somebody at work or in your social circle or your exercise circle, whatever. And then times change, people break up, uh, spouses die, and boom, you suddenly fall madly in love. It was a deep attachment that turned into intense, intense, and I repeat that, intense uh, romantic love. Or you can, even certainly when you're older, uh, fall madly in love with somebody and then have sex with them and then feel uh, you know, feelings of attachment. So they're different brain systems, sex drive, romantic love, and feelings of attachment, and they can come and go in a whole, you know, uh, in any way. I mean, what we all really want is to have all three for the same person. We want somebody we're in love with or we want somebody we're sexually attracted to. Both. Absolutely both. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's funny because I have talked to people who who get together and it's like, oh, he's acting like a 14-year-old boy. You know, and I hear this throughout the stories about people being surprised at how they're feeling like they're in love for the first time or that they're in love the way they were intensely when they were teenagers. And so I'm wondering what explains that from a science point of view. It's very easy. This is a brain system like the anger system or the fear system. You can be scared when you're two and a half. You can be scared when you're 22. You can be scared when you're 92. You can be in love when you're two and a half. You can be in love when you're 22. You can be in love when you're 92. It's a basic brain system. You know, we come from a a farming background for the last 10,000 years. And on the farm, one of women's most important roles was to have a lot of babies. Uh, to help pick the vegetables, et cetera, et cetera. So it became this belief system that after the age of menopause, women were sort of over the hill. Right. But uh, we're not. And when you study hunter-gatherer, when you study the brain, as I do, uh, it's very clear that you can fall madly in love at any age. We'll hear a love story from a listener named Linda. And we pine for love, we live for love, we kill for love, and we die for love. More from Helen after a quick break. There's a lot more episode left to go, but I just quickly want to tell you about a podcast I've come to really enjoy. It's called Embodied, and it's also produced at North Carolina Public Radio and hosted by my colleague, Anita Rao. Hi, Anita. Hey, Laura. I am so glad that you are enjoying Embodied. 
Oh, I love it. And um, I think it's because as a host, you remind me of me. We're both really curious about sex and relationships. And you even get into some of the scientific reasons behind established cultural norms. Yes, we did a whole episode about body hair removal, and we're talking about Mm. STIs and looking at why they're so stigmatized when just about everyone has one, it turns out. Um, Okay, (laughs) so not everyone. No, I'm exaggerating. But I do appreciate you talking that um, we should not stigmatize them. Yeah, the mission of Embodied is really talking about things that we leave in the dark, things that we consider too shameful for public discourse, and shedding some light on those so we all can feel a little more empathetic for one another and better understand one another without feeling like there are things that are really off limits. I think that's great. Um, And season two of Embodied is out now. I'm subscribed. I can't wait to listen. I'm so glad you're subscribed. We have some very interesting shows coming down the pipeline. Um, I'm so excited for all of your listeners to hopefully subscribe and they can listen um, right here where they're listening to this show. And I hope everyone will check it out. Hi, Laura. I'm Linda. Um, about a year and a half ago, I uh, was using the dating apps. I was using eHarmony and Match. And then one time out of the blue, I got a note from uh, someone uh, about 400 miles away from me. So he said, hello, Linda. My name is Richard and I read your profile and it seems very appealing. And I'm reaching out to you, and I know I'm far away, but I I was just hoping to get to know you a little bit better. We started chatting, and I I was um, impressed by his uh, professional background. Um, He was a medical doctor, and I I liked that someone has a nice profession, and I enjoyed that. And he was also a musician like I was. And so we had these things in common. We were musicians, we were professionals. Uh, we were parents. And then he asked me, do you want to meet up? And I'm like, how are we going to do that? We're 400 miles away from each other. He said, let's just do this. Let's find a halfway point. I'll find a bed and breakfast and it will be no strings attached. I'll get two rooms and we'll meet um, this weekend. And I said, oh, what the heck? Let's go for it, baby. You know, I found him fascinating, but I wasn't that physically attracted to him. I was taller than he was. He was I I just looked at him as a little bit nerdier and I consider myself kind of nerdy and I'm not that tall. After a while, I really felt myself getting sucked in, in in a way, but I think he was really into me too. And we talked every night, texted several times a day. Uh, He would send me these kind of nice gifts and then we would arrange to see each other. And a few times he came up to Arlington where I live and I would get rid of my sons, send them over to their dads and clean the house. And I would spend days cleaning the house, but I really wanted to impress him. So it was almost like I was living this little magical dream. And I will say I was I was still very impressed by his profession and by his wealth. I'll be honest about that. But I'm trying to tell myself, you know, we're just, you know, we're soulmates. Yeah, I mean, I think it was good sexually. It was. And I started to feel like I could 
be myself. You know, I, I came from a long, lonely marriage and I hadn't dated much at all. And so he was so into me and he kept talking about us moving in together and he would maybe, we would have a house in Arlington and a house in North Carolina and we would find a way to accommodate. I have a son with special needs and all of that. And I was getting so sucked into it. And he talked about, oh, maybe we could go like to Paris for a weekend or maybe, you know, like all kinds of stuff. He said to me at one point, he said, you know, he had been married before, but he did tell me that I was the only person he ever wanted to marry. And I just, I just felt so special. We, we loved each other. And he said to me at one point, he said, we're not having sex, Linda. We're making love because we love each other. Oh my God. I'm like, you're right. And of course, you know, love making, I was 56, 57, and he's three years older than I, you know, it's a little clunky, right? It's a little clunky. You need the little pill, uh, but I didn't care. I just thought that I was, I was in heaven. And I woke up the next morning and I looked outside and his whole house was trashed and his car was keyed. There were eggs all over the house. Someone had destroyed the backyard, furniture, plants. There was probably a few thousand dollars worth of damage of, outside of the house. I said, what is this? And he said, oh, it's my former girlfriend and she knows you're here. And then she had actually keyed my car too. He was supposed to come up to D.C. to visit with me. And of course, I had spent like the last four days cleaning the house, getting rid of my son's getting my hair done, all that stuff, because that's how I rolled with him. I really wanted to be the best girlfriend, the most patient, the most understanding. And he called me up the night before he was to come visit me. And he said, Linda, I must end our relationship right now. I don't love you and I don't want to marry you and I will never see you again. And it's the end. Don't contact me anymore. I was like, I felt like I was in junior high again, getting rejected by the boy I had a crush on. It felt the same way. And here I was, 57 years old and shattered. I was stunned and so hurt and humiliated. I, I, I begged him to explain why, like maybe we could get into therapy. Maybe, it, I mean, maybe there's, did I do anything wrong? I'm really sorry. Was I too eager? Like I was, you know... Of course, blaming myself and trying to figure it out. I said, no, I'm just, I can't do it. I just can't do it. I can't explain it, but I just can't do it. I'll never know why. So, so I'm thinking back, like, maybe this was his pattern. Maybe he did this with the other girlfriend. And maybe her response is nothing like I would have been. But maybe uh, it triggered something in her, too. You know, she was getting, I mean, she was with him for three years, so I'm sure that she got herself in, involved with him too. So I can't blame her completely. It could be that this is what he does when he gets overwhelmed with the prospect of having a committed relationship. I don't know. I think sometimes we react in ways that are so irrational and it's just so human, but I couldn't believe how hard I took it. And it just took me a long time to feel less sad and less rejected and not dream about it. And I just knew that I needed to heal. And it took me longer than I thought it would. I mean, I think that you, ha you cannot be hurting people's 
homes or threatening them or stalking them, but maybe this was her raw reaction to, to her perceived rejection. Uh, because I certainly know, you know, I've been through a lot in my life, but I know I had an intense reaction too. It's amazing what people will do when they're in love. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it's one of the most powerful brain systems the human animal has ever evolved. I mean, we pine for love, we live for love, we kill for love, and we die for love. So I've also talked with people who have done things that they're really embarrassed about when love ends or when they feel burned, I guess. What's going on in the brain when things like that happen? Bottom line is what we found in the brain, same activity in the VTA associated with the pumping out of the dopamine and real feelings of intense romantic love, activity in a brain region linked with attachment, um, activity in a brain region linked with physical pain, not just psychological pain, but physical pain, and three brain regions um, linked with craving and addiction. And in fact, the basic brain region that is associated with all of the addictions became active. Um, it's called the nucleus accumbens. It's always active with substance abuse, addiction, anything from uh, heroin, cocaine, alcohol, cigarettes, etc. And all the behavioral addictions like gambling or sex addiction, etc. So when you're dumped, the most powerful brain regions associated with addiction become activated. And you can really do some stupid things. Oh. And in fact, you know, it's very difficult to control. Don't forget that this is a drive, mm. like hunger and thirst. It's very hard to control hunger and thirst. And it's very hard to control feelings of intense romantic love. So nobody gets out of love alive. <laughs> we all look back and say, what did I do that for? How could I possibly? Why? What was I thinking? Um, and in fact, when you're madly in love, certain brain regions in the uh, frontal, behind your forehead, uh, prefrontal cortex, brain regions linked with uh, decision making, uh, begin to reduce activity. Okay. So you're focused on somebody, mm -hmm. you've got this intense energy, you're absolutely craving them, you can't eat, you can't sleep, you, if you're a woman, you can't stop talking about it. If you're a man, you might hole up and watch TV and drink too much or drive too fast. And that's just the beginning. Let's say we go through a terrible breakup and we don't want to repeat the same behaviors that we did before. Is there a way to retrain the brain so that we act more logically the next time around? Well, um, acting is different from feeling. Um, and I do think that um, next time around, you may feel exactly the same pain and passion and craving, etc. Oh. But maybe you've learned that this time you're not going to fly from New York to Sydney, Australia to get down on your knee at lunchtime and then fly back, you know. So, you know, I mean, behavior can change. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's, it's just like hunger or thirst. I mean, can you train yourself to not be thirsty? Probably not. Mm. But you can certainly train yourself to not go racing after, you know, uh, booze and drink water instead, uh, something like that. So, um, 
Uh, it's like the fear system, though. I mean, I don't. It's a really good question. I really haven't thought of it quite this way. Sure, let's say you're terrified of spiders. Can you get yourself used to spiders and not be scared of them? Probably you can. Sure, the, but the brain is flexible. It's plastic, as they say. It's flexible. But romantic love is very powerful. Now, I remember one time with me, um, there was a man who every time... He, he was in. He was a, an editor, and there was no way I was going to put the make on an editor of one of my... you know. But every single time I saw this man, I felt intense romantic love for him. I never told him. I never put the slightest move on him, ever. Would never have dreamt of it. And I would come home and I'd lie down and I'd say, all right, Helen, just enjoy the feeling and it will pass. Mm. And indeed, after two or three days, um, uh, it uh, it would pass. So I, I do think that you can train yourself to not do stupid things. <laughs> but I think it's very difficult to stop the brain from feeling things. You know, Helen Fisher is not only an expert on the brain and love, she also has her own gray love story. Plus, she's done research about the older brain and dating. So much more to talk about, and not enough time in this episode. Want to hear more? I've invited Helen to talk with me at a virtual lunch on Wednesday, May 12th, and I'm inviting you, too. Please join us to learn more about Helen's research and ask your own questions about the older brain and love. You can go to the Dating While Gray Facebook page to get more details and RSVP. My thanks to Helen Fisher and to everyone who shared advice, information, and personal experiences on Dating While Gray. This is the final episode of Season 2. Where did the time go? And thank you so much for listening and for writing and for calling. I love the supportive community we've built. Please stay in touch. Contact me at datingwhilegray at wunc.org. And be sure to follow Dating While Gray on Facebook and Twitter to keep up with all the news about a new season and other special things we have planned for you. Dating While Gray is a production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Thanks to producers Kamaya Truitt and Charlie Shelton Ormond for their work on this episode and our entire second season. Our theme music is by Daniel Peterschmidt, and WUNC's director of content is Lindsay Foster Thomas. And I'm your host, Laura Stasi. Thanks so much for listening.